This is Ryan Harvey in Baltimore, and you're listening to episode 20 of Hope Dies Last, Chile's long fight against neoliberalism. You cannot apply this sort of economic changes, cultural changes at the end, without violation of human rights. The whole population has to be shocked. What's going on in the world is actually it's one word, and it's inequality. People are understanding that not only money inequality, but power inequality. We have to see what is happening in Chile in the context of populism and neoliberalism. September 11th marked 47 years since the fascist military coup in Chile in 1973. That coup was orchestrated with heavy assistance and collaboration from the CIA, and it resulted in the death of Chile's first democratically elected president, Salvador Allende, as well as thousands of leftists and student activists. The coup marked the introduction of neoliberal policies, not just to Chile, but many argue to the world. It became a testing ground for the economic model that we've come to identify with in the United States. Mass privatization, a cutting back of as much government services as possible to people in the service of financial institutions, multinational corporations, and corrupt officials. And even after nearly two decades of the dictatorship of General Augusto Pinochet, the neoliberal policies never left. In October of last year, a student uprising began in Santiago and spread to the entire country. Dozens of people were killed, and the uprising hasn't really ended. One of the people who was killed in 1973 was the folk singer Victor Jara. You have to imagine the most famous singer in the country at the time being executed in a stadium filled with political prisoners and just dumped on the street days later. When the Chilean government instituted a curfew and a lockdown due to the uprising, the words of Victor Jara again rang out through the country. A video went viral of people singing his song El Derecho de Vivir from their apartments. More videos followed of people then gathered in the streets singing, one with hundreds of guitarists playing the same song. What you just heard was Victor Jara's El Derecho de Vivir. At the end, you heard a new version of that same song, recorded in the wake of the 2019 and 2020 uprising in Chile. Words were rewritten to sort of capture the modern moment, but in honor of the original song and the spirit of Victor Jara. Joining me today on the show is Alan Ruckert. He is a Chilean activist. And how do I how do I describe you? Why don't you Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi everyone. I'm a law student. I've been participating for over a decade with the Palestinian struggle, and I've been also involved in human rights campaigns and also with the student struggle in Chile. And what we're going to be talking about today is the recent uprising in Chile, the student struggle, also Chilean history, and it's very close and very fucked up links to the United States. 
So, Alan, why don't you, you were participating in the recent protests. Why don't you just give us a bit of an overview of what's been happening in Chile in the last year and kind of the historical significance of the uprising? So, for many years and for too long, I believe, there has been this sensation that although most of the people knew that there was great insatisfaction with the current system, since the return of the democracy, people thought that having the democracy, having a certain respect for human rights was enough so that the oligarchy and the elites could stay calm and with no worries that the people would insurrect. But what happened, and as it usually happens in history, very small things at the end show the barbarity of the whole system. And what happened in October of last year, in the beginnings of beginnings of October, was that the government, a right-wing government, and I would also say populist government, given all, all of the events after the social rebellion, they announced that they were going to, there was going to be an increase in the tariff of all of the transportation in the main city that is Santiago de Chile, where 7 million people live, and the students, and it's very common in Chile that the students are the ones that give the first steps of a insurrection, not only in Chile, but also in Argentina, in Peru, um, in Brazil also. So the students were the first ones that started going and uh, going into the transportation, especially the metro system, the subway system, without paying and shouting different slogans against the, this, against the system, the injustices of the system, not against specifically the government of Sebastián Piñera, who is the current president and still is the president, unbelievably. And all the old people, they were 17 years of dictatorship, the long and dark neoliberal night, how the Equatorian president uh, Rafael Correa says. And all those people, I believe, who work, most of them who use the, the public transport system, seeing these young people assuming this responsibility, provoked that after weeks of student protest, one Friday, the 18th of October of last year, a real popular insurrection happened. And what do I mean with this? Is that the whole system collapsed. No one wanted to go home. People wanted to actually see the regime fall. That is actually the same phrase that you hear since the Arab revolutions of 2011, you know? The people demand the system to fall. I don't know it in Arabic, but that's what they say. That's what the people in Hong Kong say. And it's so interesting because when one discusses the, for example, I will come back to this point again, but everything has to do with everything, how the Argentinians say this phrase very commonly, is that in the 70-73 period, the Unidad Popular government of Allende, the socialist and communist government that we had, a popular government actually, it was that you have to see it in a context of the Cold War. Well, now we have to see what is happening in Chile in the context of populism and neoliberalism. That is the context in which we are now, and that is the context in, in which these events are going on and forward, or may even stale eh, in, this, in this precise moment. So what happened that Friday was that there was a real sense of fear, not of the people for the first time, but of the elites, of the 0.1% of the population that amasses the 
26% of our riches. And that is only comparable to which country, my dear Ryan? To your country, to the United States of America. It's very similar, the percentage of the richness that the 1% the or the less than 1% have in comparison with the total GDP. So Chile has that similarity with the United States. And, it's, and because of this, you know, it happened, uh, the, the, the insurrection and one week later was the most massive popular movement demonstration in the whole history of Chile, even greater than against Pinochet, where more than 2 million people of Santiago went to the streets. I was there and most of the people of Santiago were there actually. And since then, the, there was this picture of the people that were uh, over this monument, which rage against the machine, made it uh, like the poster of their whole world tour. And after that, you saw exactly the same image of people over monuments, their own monuments, for example, in the south of the United States, in Richmond, Virginia, where there is this huge uh, monument to, I, 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 I'm pretty sure it's to General Lee, right? And it was exactly the same thing. It's so beautiful. Like, it's poetry, you know? You see this repetition, this rhythm in the whole world, in different corners of exactly the same thing happen, happening. And these monuments are dedicated to different genocidal, tyrannical criminals, but they represent the same ideas. And the people over these monuments are exactly representing the same, although they have different color and they speak different languages. It's exactly the same image. So we can talk about Chile, but at the end, aren't we talking about the whole world? The fact that neoliberalism and, and the ideology of just global capitalism ties together so many of the recent uprisings in the world. It's also not even a direct link. It's not like people in Chile and people in Tunisia and Lebanon and, and Ferguson, Missouri, or in Minneapolis or Portland. They're not all reading the same literature. They're not reading the same books. They're not even reading the same Twitter accounts. They're seeing examples through photos and videos throughout the world of people asserting their rights to change the future of, of, of the life in front of them and to change the conditions of power and to combat inequality and state violence and corruption. And it's asymmetrical how that influence moves through the world, but it's pretty hard to deny that it's happening, that people see other people struggling and they, and they are influenced by that in a real way. I have this, uh, this feeling that what's going on in the world, it's actually, it's one word, and it's inequality. People are understanding and not only money inequality, but power inequality. Mm. In so many countries, the elites have all of the power. You are seeing this, this degradation of institutions in the United States, the most powerful country in human existence and in which institutions just cannot. It, it, it's so much the influence of these elites that institutions that were in some time in history, modern, progressive, democratic, visionary even, they just don't, they can't handle this amount of money, this amount of, of exaggerated interests and influence of so little people. 
it's it's the level of corruption and the level of power, but I also think it's the level of the mythology that needs to be kept in place in order to keep people, you know, following the rules and playing into the system. And I think in the U.S., it's just the myth is too large. If they if they budge too much, you know, it, you you have to imagine like some of these people seem to, and this is true. This was true of the Arab dictatorships that fell, and or the ones that haven't fell and other you know governments throughout the world like they can't even use the common sense to look out for their own interests by like not overreacting you know if if Mubarak hadn't sent the police to the streets of Egypt with you know just a license to kill he could have avoided getting overthrown but he literally couldn't like his only way of reacting was just with just absolute power and violence and you have to wonder, do these people, like, are they thinking about, logically, about keeping power? Or are they really, is this really just, like, gut reactions of extremely greedy people who are so disconnected from reality that they really don't think people are going to get angry? I, I, it's, it, conf- it kind of baffles me, to be honest. In Chile, it, it's, it's very similar. It's more similar to the United States in the sense what what's going on right now, right? I, I mean... I'm referring to, to, to this point, this exact point in history, is that we have this president which has always in his entire life been part of an oligarchy. He is now one of the richest 1,000 people in the world, according to Forbes. That's our president. And he's like the fifth richest in Chile, right? I guess he's the third, actually. It's Luxic, which is of Croatian descent, which is irrelevant, but maybe for you, but in Chile it's very relevant, like from where they from where they come, because there is no multimillion, there's no billionaire which is Chilean. They so this is Croatian, the other guy is German, the other guy is Italian. It's pretty unbelievable, you know, because we have a very fragmented society. And that was one of the great success of, of, of the Pinochet dictatorship. You know, that's a very interesting subject. You know, Ryan, because here in Chile, our history was so dismembered after 17 years. And one has to remember the rest of the world and the listeners who are listening to us is that Chile was the epicenter of the cultural revolution of the 70s. Mm-hmm. We had we had the folk singers, the folk artists, the people were painting, the people were doing sculptures and uh, We had a project that was called the Project Cinco, which was one of the first attempts to have a centralized economy through internet. It was really a revolutionary, cultural, intellectual movement, the Unidad Popular, the Salvador Allende government, for people they want want to investigate about about it. So then came the dictatorship, and everything was dismembered, literally. People were dismembered. And cities were dis- were dismembered. The communities were dismembered. Uh, I was talking about this because of uh, because of Chile. We have this thing of from where are you and from where is your family? Are you Palestinian? Are you German? And we can later talk about this because of the huge Palestinian community that is here. But the thing is that in this dismembered society, we have this president that is a billionaire. He's the 800th more richest person in the world, which is very similar with Donald Trump. And that is very different to Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro is a military guy. He's a nationalist. I can say the same thing about our president. 
I can't say that about our oligarchy. This is very different. This is the neoliberal um, consequences and symptoms, right? In which you have no culture and the only culture is the culture of consumption, a fake exit, um, success. Uh, people are looking for certain success that it's, it's traduced to bigger houses, bigger cars, very similar to what's happening with the Trumpian people in America. Like here, the people that are the upper class, upper middle class, they want to have these huge American SUVs. And they want to live in the suburbs. And that has also made the quality of life much worse for the people that are poorer. So these protests, just to wrap that part up, the protests lasted I mean, are they still going on? Did they stop because of the pandemic? But the pr- uprising started right in October of 2019, and it continued for many, many months. Yes. Up to March, the end of the month of March, in which the schools started shutting down. And then in April came the national, not na- not even national, but it was a, it, it was a divided and lockdown of regions or certain parts of the city which was an utter failure but yeah so the movement and the the insurrection was until march in which there every every single day there was a movement and protest in different parts of the city and of the of, and of the country but on from fridays to sundays every single week since the 18th of october there were massive demonstration and massive human rights abuses as a response. And there were dozens of people killed, correct? Yes. Uh, the number is currently over 40, but it's actually it's actually undetermined because they found calcinated, burned bodies in different stores, in supermarkets, and the military said that these people, because they were stealing, they were looting, they were burned because of the looting, and they were inside. But then the attorney general and different attorneys and regional attorneys of our country discovered that they were actually shot at and they had gun wounds. And all of this is absolutely unknown, the the, the entirety of the story, because we still have exactly the same political, the same cops, we have the same military authorities, they are exactly the same. They say no one has stepped down. And so these protests, you were talking earlier about how they are, you know, have to be seen in the context of neoliberalism and the neoliberal project. And you've also talked about, well, both of us talked about how these protests are also in the context of this wave of global uprisings, sometimes directly connected, often not, but that see reflections of each other, you know, in, in the streets of different countries. Another period where that happened was the late 60s and the early early 70s. In the U.S., a lot of us think about, you know, 1968, we think about this big protest in Chicago, the Democratic National Convention. There was obviously the, the rise of the Black Panthers. A lot of, I mean, pop culture thinks of the hippies and Woodstock and all of this. But the left, you know, it was the Weather Underground. It was the Black Panthers. It was, you know, a Puerto Rican independence movement. There was the war in Vietnam. There was huge protests. There was lots of members of the military who were refusing orders, and there were riots on military bases. There was a lot happening during Vietnam. And in the rest of the world, 
the 19th, you know, late 1960s was a massive period of, of revolutionary activity uh, in Vietnam itself, which, you know, influenced a lot of the world all across Latin America. You had left movements rising, some of them more democratic, some of them were more armed guerrilla movements, sometimes both. And in Chile, we're going to talk about the coup in 1973 and the role of the United States in that and the whole region through Operation Condor, the role of the United States and the CIA. But before we get into that, I just want to ask you maybe to put it even in, in a further context, because your grandparents came over to Chile from Eastern Europe and from Germany. Your mother's family are Jews and your father's family was actually German. Exactly. Something that happened in Latin America that a lot of folks, especially I think in the U.S., don't realize is that after the Second World War and right before the Second World War, lots of Jewish refugees and refugees from Eastern Europe came to South America, but so did ranking Nazis and rank and file Nazis. And those seeds were planted, in, especially in the South, in Argentina and Chile, but also in, in Brazil and throughout the continent. And that we really started to see the consolidation of that influence and of a more domestic fascist influence coming out of militaries in, in South America in the 60s as the left was rising, as the left was winning some victories in the streets and electorally. And Chile probably is the most famous one here in the United States because of the very direct relationship we had with it. But we had a relationship with almost all of the right-wing dictatorships throughout Latin American history, to be honest. But let's go to, we just passed the anniversary of, of the Chilean coup, September 11th of 1973. Why don't you just take us to the years before that and kind of go into to what happened in, in 1973 and how that changed Chilean history permanently up until this day where, where people are again in the streets fighting the, the policies that were implemented during that era? So it's very well known now because it wasn't some years ago because there has been a very important movement of historical revisionism all along Chile and all along South America, actually. So Chile had this image, its own image, as a self-image that the military was a, a, an apolitical force in which they had a non-intervention policy in politics. But that is now known that it's a complete fallacy. It's a complete construct. It's a manipulation. The Chilean army has been intervening against the people of the, of, of, of the people and, and the poorer people and their calls for a just for, for of, a, of, a, of a society, a more just society since the late 1800s. So I have to say this because the government of Allende and the Unidad Popular government was actually a very brief parenthesis in what, in what has been a long history of military intervention in favor of the oligarchy in, in our country. So before the, 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 the government of Salvador Allende, there, the, the most important process that was going on politically and territorially was the agrarian reforms that was started by a center-left, center-right, there is a discussion, for me it's center-right politician, president, uh, who was called Eduardo Frei Montalva. This same president, which was center-right, it was so egregious, the violations against the human rights in the dictatorship, and he 
who called, I'm talking about Eduardo Frey, who called for a coup against Salvador Allende, was later assassinated. He was poisoned by the dictatorship of Pinochet. So that president, center-right, a Christian Democrat, he started a land reform. And that was like the whole, that was like the thing that kept most of the oxygen of the political discussion in the years previous to the, of the, to the government of, of the Unidad Popular. Then Allende came to power and Allende did a lot of things in very, 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 very few time. In a thousand days, it's called the thousand, the thousand days of the government of Allende for many people. For many people, it's the thousand days of the disaster of Allende. And he nationalized the banks. He nationalized the copper production. And that is like the huge thing. That is a huge thing in Chile because he did something that no one else did. It was the main income for the state and for the government and the fiscal arcs. And he nationalized it. And actually, he nationalized it with the votes of both right-wing and left-wing politicians. It was a great thing that actually inspired Hugo Chavez, inspired Evo Morales, inspired Rafael Correa, inspired even Lula da Silva, inspired many people 40 years after, 30 years after, 50 years after even. So in those thousand days, the United States made a blockade. We had no loans. We had no credits. We had no material for the industry of the copper exploitation. And so the country, it had a, a, a big boom when people started gaining more money. The, the, the working class started gaining more money. So there was a big boom in consumption, but there could be no imports. So then came a crisis. The government of Salvador Allende was known in that time for having the biggest inflation rate in the whole world. It shattered many records in, in terms of inflation. And the thing is that the discussion is interesting because when one is left-wing, one, there are things that happen. There was chaos. There was inflation. There was economic uh, depression. Yes, the thing is that why? And the thing that happened is that Chile was in the center uh, and was in the eyes of Richard Nixon and even before with other presidents, because Salvador Allende intent, uh, tried to be president many times before. And when he won, Allende transformed himself in the center of the preoccupation of the foreign policy of the Nixon government, of the Nixon administration. And that is also one thing that one cannot leave apart, leave aside. It's very interesting. One must analyze the government of Salvador Allende, understanding that there, that there was this huge pushback from the Nixon administration, which at the end provoked this tragic coup. And what we saw after the coup on the 11th of September of 1973 was that there was a counter-revolution. What we had in Chile was another sort of revolution of a minority, but a revolution nonetheless. And that revolution pointed at privatization of absolutely everything, of healthcare, of the water supply, of electricity supply, of education. So what we're seeing now, uh, what people are demanding now, is exactly the opposite. And it has everything to do with the changes that happened between the 70, 73 and the 90s. And not even between 73 and the 90s. Many people 
thing that did did was an immediate counter-revolution. It was a, this was an immediate reactionary movement. It wasn't so, and this is very important because when people make reference to the dictatorship in Chile, they say it's the civic military dictatorship, la dictadura cívico militar. Why? Because people understood and people understand right now better than any other time in Chile is that there were civilians not only part of the dictatorship, but they were the ones that constructed, they were the ones that elaborated this whole new narration of our country. They were the ones, the civilians that study at Chicago University with Milton Friedman, who in the 80s presented something that was called The Block, which was a huge manual, a huge book that these Chicago boys redacted for Pinochet because Pinochet, before hearing of these civilians, he was very nationalistic. He wanted to maintain the 100% of the production of copper in the Chilean state hands and responsibility. But after he talked with these young men, and they were all men, Caucasian, Caucasian men, white men, and from the elites, he changed course. And it was actually in the 80s when after approved this new constitution where there were no voter registration, there were no political parties. And with the constitution of 1980s, we have this new political, cultural, and economic system that enabled neoliberalism to be tested here in Chile, later in the UK with Margaret Thatcher, and afterwards with Ronald Reagan in the United States. And why is this important? Because right now in Chile, we are having this discussion of a new constitution, and we're going to vote for this new, uh, we're ha having this referendum on the 25th of October to have a new constitution. What's actually on the table in that referendum? What does what the new constitution say that's different from the old one? And how big of a deal is it to people? Are people mo going to mobilize around this? Is there, is there a lot to lose and a lot to gain? As a matter of fact, the Chilean constitution has a particularity that it says explicitly that the state is a subsidiary state. So by saying this, the constitution, the state cannot be involved in strategic businesses, in development, uh, basically in helping the, the research and development uh, of the country and its economy and its economy for the, well, for the well-being of the people. So that is one of the changes that can happen. So you're saying it's like, it's like constitutionally neoliberal, like the government is constitutionally obligated to not get involved in managing the private sector or, or, or restricting it? Yes. Is that what you mean? Yes. It sounds insane, but actually it's, that, that's, what's, that's what's going on in Chile since the 80s. And the people who promoted this was the civilian portion of the population, of the oligarchy, as the military as well, because they were, they were gaining something. They were, the military has better healthcare, has better education, has better housing. So there is a discussion here, for example, that why does one 
hate so much the military and the police force. Like, they are also very poor, you know. Most of the people that are in the police force or in the military, they are not rich boys. They are poor boys. And that is also, that is, that is also true. But what is also true is the fact that they are fighting now in cahoots with the government against the people because they would also lose a lot of benefits. Or at least that, that is what they say and that is what they think. As a matter of fact, what the people want, most of the people want, the civilians, is that they want to have the same benefits as the mm -hmm. military and the police force. They don't want to have more. They want to have exactly the same. And what we're seeing in Chile is that this last reduxes of the, of the Pinochetista elite, of people that really believe in the Pinochetista project that is actually insane because the economic part of that project comes hand in hand with the violation of human rights. As Naomi Klein explains, the shock theory is that you cannot apply this sort of economic changes, cultural changes at the end, without violation of human rights. The whole population has to be in shock. So there is this 10, 15, I would say maximum 20% of the population, which includes the military family and the police force family, that are against a new constitution. The rest of the country want a new constitution according to the polls. At least 60, 65% of the population. And that is part of the ballot. And there is a second question in the ballot. That is, if the option of a new constitution actually wins, which it will, that is for sure. But what is not for sure is the second question. Which option will win? And that is, do you want a mixed constitutional convention or a constitutional, constitutional convention? A mixed constitutional convention means half of the constituent organ would be elected by the citizenship, by the citizens, and the other half would be elected by the same politicians that are incumbent now in both chambers of Congress. And the constitutional convention would be 100% integrated by people elected by the citizens. The first option would mean that people who are already in office pick half of the people who are going to replace them? No, I no, no, I, I, I know that they, they're going to choose another other people that are going to replace them. They're going to choose between them who of them <laughs> is going to integrate this new instance. And that is what's going on in Chile now until the 25th of October when the, when the vote is counted. And this is the first time that there was not a new constitution after after Pinochet fell. There were reforms. There were more than, than 40 constitutional reforms made to the constitution. But, but And that is why it's necessary to change it. In its structure, the most important points of the role of the state in the economy, for example, for example, in terms of life, it's an anti-abortion constitution. So all those subjects are treated in the constitution. And let me tell you something. Even if those subjects were reformed, the Chilean people have had this problem for so many decades of the illegitimacy of this constitution that it is a problem that we must solve now. So 
that is done. So that has a solution and we can actually have the discussions that are important for the 21st century. You're listening to Hope Dies Last. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and consider going to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Ryan Harvey Music. You can sign up to make a monthly donation to help me produce the show. Thanks for listening, everyone, and enjoy the rest of the show. Alan, one of the things that we talked about earlier when we were talking about the spread of global political energy, both from the right and the left, and you know, a lot of people here in the U.S. make references to the 60s. I mean, it's partly a curse. You know, I'm a folk singer and I write protest songs, so people go, oh, you're like Bob Dylan. Everything that happens in the streets in the U.S. has to be connected to something that happened in the 60s by pop culture. It's their only frame of reference for understanding it. It's pretty embarrassing, honestly, because it really epitomizes Americans' lack of knowledge about our own history and the fact that there were uprisings in other eras, there's been other political movements, but no one ever makes references to the 30s or, you know, the 19-teens or anything like this. But there is something true connecting us to the 60s right now. And I think it's very true in Chile as well. And this is big picture stuff, but the neoliberal era is in serious crisis and it may be on the way out. We don't know. They're definitely thinking it's in crisis. We're definitely understanding that it's in crisis. Something that we're seeing is political identities that were really kind of fringe 10 or 15 years ago, whether that's fascism or whether it's communism or socialism or anarchism, have sort of become fairly mainstream words here in the United States. I mean, you have Donald fucking Trump talking about anarchist jurisdictions, cities that are run by anarchists, and, you know, painting the Democratic Party, which is absurd as, you know, this socialist far-left movement that's going to destroy America. But but then on the grassroots, like in the streets, you actually do have a lot of people identifying with the far-left way more than what it would have been seen 10, 20 years ago. Again, it's not because somebody wrote a new communist manifesto and people are reading it. It's because the era that we grew up in, you know, the end of history, this was just kind of how things were going to be for the rest of life. Everything is, you know, quote, stable. And the bottom fell out. The financial crisis globally, the bottom fell out. And people started looking in the two different directions, to the right and the left, for answers. So in Chile, like, we, we think about, we read about the history in Chile. We read about the coup and the role of the CIA and, like, the disappearances of activists all over Latin America, especially in Argentina. And you think that it was, like, you know, this dark forgotten era that's gone now and God, that was horrible. But then you realize that there's a lot of people alive today in Latin America who supported that and who still support it. People who are nostalgic for people like Pinochet. But then you also have the people whose parents were the left then and were involved in the movements and saw the dictatorships from the other perspective, from the opposition. And it's not just their influence that's happening. It's actually the the real-life experience of people on the ground, and I think you were talking about that. But let's talk about the situation today in Chile in that more global context, I guess, not, not only in, in the history of Chile, but, but really in the world right now. Like, what's happening? How do you see what's happening in Chile in that context, and what do you see in the world right now from your perspective? The first dis- distinction I would like to make, and I was thinking about this last night watching a rally of Donald Trump, is that... The, the peculiarity of the United States is that, in fact, 
most part of the population, the white population, of course, lived an American dream in a sense, in one way or another. So there is a vinculation, there is a link, there is an, an emotional approach with, with the past, you know, that the past was better, that uh, family was better. In Chile, it's not that. In Chile, most of the people never benefited with this system, with the neoliberal system. Of course, people now have one car, people have their television, the, in, the housing infrastructure is much better than in the 70s, but that, that is obvious because of the technological advances. But here in Chile, really, most of the people, 80% of the people, 70% of the people, were never near the dream that was promised when the neoliberal system was established here in Chile. So the explosion was so immense, it, it, it really felt like a revolution, Ryan. Like uh, that night I, I went to the center of Santiago and when you just felt like this, there was no state, there was no law, no one wanted to respect the law, no one wanted to abide by the law because the law has been a thing that for decades has been benefiting a few. And I, I feel Chile is not, near populism, but it's actually in populism. We have a president that is lying every day. All of the ministers lie. They try to collapse the media and the, and the discussion and the public discussion with lies and with absurdities. Most of the ministers and deputy ministers or secretaries and deputy secretaries, as you would say in the United States, were involved in one way or another with the dictatorship of Pinochet or the younger people that they are working in this administration are people that are related with the think tanks of the people that worked in dictatorships. Like almost everyone, almost everyone. So it's not like we are, we, we elected people that have a positive view of or perspective of what was the dictatorship. They were involved in the dictatorship. You had a fascist military dictatorship that fell, but there was not actually a, a real fall. There, was, there wasn't really a, a reckoning or any sort of... I guess what I'm saying is 2019 was kind of the reckoning, right? Exactly, Ryan. That, ex Ryan, that is, that is the main point. You must remember, uh, and for the people that are listening and they don't know, when Pinochet left power, there was this whole, this whole imaginary story that he had left the power democratically because he wanted, like, which dictator in the history of the world has left the, the power because he wanted to leave the power? Well, that is not true. People were demonstrating and protesting very, very, very strongly in all of the poor areas of the, of the major cities of, 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 of Chile. That was what's going on. Like tanks were going in this, in these poor neighborhoods. Helicopters were going into these poor neighborhoods. That was going on in the in eighty six and eighty seven, and that's why he agreed on eighty eight to make the referendum. And after that, when he left the presidency, he stayed as commander in chief of the 
military of the armed forces until 1998. So the dictator stayed in power of the military with absolute power of veto. And that's pretty obvious. If the dictator is the commander of chief of all the use of force, then he has a veto power until 1998. I was nine years old. And after that, not only that, there was a pact between the people of the, the center-left coalition called Concertación, and they had this pact with Pinochet. And after he left the, uh, the, the, as commander-in-chief of, of the armed forces, he was then made a senator for life in Chile. So you had a Pinochet from 98 to 2000 as a senator, and he went to the Senate chamber, and there were the sons and daughters that were now senators or representatives, which were sons and daughters of people that Pinochet had made disappear. And all of the right-wing parties defended Pinochet. There was no reckoning. And after that, Pinochet was arrested in London. And the president of Chile, Eduardo Frei Ruiz Tagle, the son of the other and late president, Eduardo Frei Montalva, which was poisoned by Pinochet, appeared in national television asking for clemency for the dictator and asking for England to send back the dictator. The same son of the president that was assassinated. There was no reckoning, Ryan. There was humiliation. When I saw the video, I talked about it in the introduction, the video of people in the streets in Santiago a few months ago at the end of last year, I suppose, singing Victor Jara's song, El Derecho de Vivir en Paz. The, the thought I had was that it wasn't just a beautiful moment. It was like, it felt like it was part of a much deeper transformation or a much deeper reckoning with the past. And I just like, I, I was crying watching that video because I was just thinking, People like like Victor Jara, if he could see this and know that the impact of what he did and what so many people around him did and people he never met did who were killed in the 70s, in 73, if they could understand that what they did even in those last moments mattered and still matters in a big way, it still deeply influences politics what more can you ask for? I think it's, you know, some of these people died alone, but people are recognizing them and not just in a bullshit way of putting their name on a placard. They're, they're fighting in their name in the streets. Exactly. And as a Chilean and as a people that studied law, for example, and I come from a very privileged uh, family and school, it was for me like one thought that came immediately to my, to my head was the fact that we are recognizing now, again, artists. <laughs> it's so simple. Like this, this country really doesn't recognize artists. And this whole process that started with the coup in 73, a few years ago, they, many people and historians and educators said that that period this, that started on seven in this in 1973 ended in 1990 with the transition to democracy but now people understand that transition to democracy it is not but one last phase of the dictatorship and it is and it is that transition 
to democracy that is ending now, almost 30 years later. Alan, we are about out of time, but I wanted to thank you for chatting with me today and just refresh us real quick so folks can pay attention to the news. The referendum in Chile is coming up on what date and will the results be known immediately? The voting and the results occur the 25th of October and the results are that same day. And is there any indication that the protests are going to continue or resume at any point or, or is that sort of just at a standstill because of the pandemic? I believe the protests and demonstrations, riots are going to continue after the referendum because people are waiting real changes, concrete changes, pragmatic changes in their own lives. And they know that the constitution, if it's approved, because there must be another referendum after the constitution is redacted, there must be another referendum. Even when that constitution is approved, People are going to wait for changes and are going to ask for changes in their lives in things so important as their health care and education and uh, housing. Well, Alan, thanks so much for, for chatting. And, and uh, yeah, folks should stay tuned to, to what's going on in Chile. And uh, if we need to, we'll do another update with Alan. Thank you so much. Hope Dies Last is produced by me. Special thanks to our guest today, Alan Ruckert. And thank you to all of you for listening. Please get to patreon.com slash Music. Sign up to make a monthly donation. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. If you've been enjoying my episodes, spread the word and help me get more listeners. Stay tuned. I'll have another episode coming up in the next couple of weeks. Take care, everybody, and stay safe. Peace. <laughs>